You're listening to a DM podcast. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Growing up in a notorious block in Redfern in the mid-80s, a life of crime was almost a given for Jeff Morgan. A proud Indigenous man, he is now a motivational speaker and creator of the Lifestyle Program. Mate, it's dead set a pleasure to have you here and um, you're one of these guys that uh, I certainly take energy uh, from and I dead set am inspired by the work you you do and... um, you and I are people that bounce a lot of stuff off each other and you know, and we try to be an influence to others. So, Jeff Morgan, welcome to The Stick Up. Mate, thanks for having me. Great introduction and, yeah, I'm all about energy. I always have been and I surround myself with those that um, want to lift one another up, share the knowledge, help each other grow, prosper with life and I think those are the type of people you want to be around as much as you possibly can because, as I said, you don't want to sit within the past stress anxiety ptsd whatever it may be within your life and we want to be around people that are striving and thriving throughout life so you know to start this off based around what you said make sure you listen to the energy that somebody's giving off on a regular basis and make sure you're around those people more often than not jeff let's start off you grew up in everly street redfern one of the most notorious streets in sydney what was it like growing up there? Tell us about your upbringing and, and where it all began. Yeah, it was, you know, to put it in context, no one would go down there. Police didn't want to drive down there because they'd get bricked. They'd jump out of the car. The, someone had held a brick at the car. Absolutely. And I'm talking straight through the front rin- window towards the person. And you've got to think about the mentality of why that's happening and what's ha- what's the background of that. And whether, Why was that, do you think? I think there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of um, resentment from the past and not the acknowledgement of what had happened throughout the country. And then, you know, Aboriginal people, especially with the government in general at that point in time, in history were very angry didn't know how to deal with it we didn't have the coping strategies the social media wasn't around or the or the internet for that matter and i think people just didn't have the coping strategies um how to process that anger the resentment the past history and i think that was being taken out taken out in what they felt including myself was the best form of dishing out yeah the uh, whatever you want to call it the retribution yeah you know the we wanted to be heard yeah and we weren't being heard that was probably the best way of putting it and we wanted to get our point across and it, that was just an environment you know as a 12 year old kid going out i remember really strongly my little nephew come up and said aunt, aunt, give some money and i was like what do you want the money for he goes i'll get some food he went up the shop i think i gave him five ten bucks whatever it was he went up the shop came back he had a basket full of food at that point in time it was a lot cheaper back in those days and i was basically able to then say well you know nice work are you going to take that down to mum 
A cop car drives down, he pulls out the eggs, he throws the eggs at the cop car because the window was sort of down, throws the eggs through the middle of the cop car and hits the officer in the head. And at that point in time, that kid's, you know, I think he was eight years old. And if you're in, if you've got that within a kid, why is that happening? What is What's the underlying issue of that resentment? Absolutely. And that's what I always, it taught me valuable lessons of life. This kid didn't, he wasn't born that way. And why did that happen? How did it come about? How could we create change? And that being in amongst all of that, you've got to think about an eight-year-old kid wanting to do that. So by the time I was 12, we were well entrenched in warfare. And you know, we were looking at people like the IRA. Think about that whole conversation. Yeah. That's how yeah. deep it was. How old were you when you were living on Everly Street? I would have been 12 at the time. Because you come down from Walgett, is that right? Uh, nah. So I'd, I'd lived at... Um, just up the road in Elizabeth Street next to Redfern Oval at the time with my father, mm. um, German-Austrian. And, you know, he was trying to do the best thing by me, a lot of discipline and structure. And, you know, later on in life I realised... So was, your father was German-Austrian, your mother was Indigenous, is that correct? Correct, yeah. correct. And for me, he taught me some huge values that are now, you know, form a huge part of who I am today. At that point in time, everyone was allowed out to late at night and all of that st- stuff. I, I was home by five. So at 12, I decided to jump out the first floor window and it's probably the um, you know, worst decision of my life. I wasn't educated enough. And that led me to living on Everly Street at about 12 years of age, 1985, huge trauma from the past of you know the stolen generation and the treatment of aboriginal people within australia uh, and as i say many a times just to clarify that the best race on this planet is the human race when we all get on and my mother taught me four things love kindness empathy and respect towards other humans no matter who they are and don't ever look at a color just look at the person's qualities and how they treat you as a person and individual so i took that mentality even at a young age from my mother um, 12 years of age, moved into Redfern, and I was in and out of Redfern. What drew, drew you to Redfern? Did your mother move there? Or? Yeah, mum was at 88 Everly Street. I was in and out of mm. Everly Street. Mm. Um, between parents, they had broken up mm. when I was quite young. I remember at about 10 years of age being on Redfern Street and both of them asking me, who do you want to live with? And I was, I kept answering as a young kid, I want to live with you both. And they're like, no, you've got to pick and choose one of us. And I was like, I don't pick one of you, so I pick both of you. Not understanding the whole situation of them breaking up and i think that lived with me for a very long time so i was between houses i was in early street out of but i officially moved in when i was about 12 Mm. um with mum uh ongoingly and Mm. at that point in time life started to change you got to imagine 13 kids in one house a mattress on the floor is that what was the family structure tell me how many was it you're the where do you stand in the family unit i was second youngest uh, seven brothers um two sisters We all spread out at that point in time, but I had uncles. You had everyone from everywhere that would come to Redfern from, you know, whether it was Moree, Walgut, our family's from Walgut, um, and anywhere else that we knew, they'd come and stay at home. And you'd have 13 people in the house, and I'd have this foam mattress that was probably full of bed bugs, full of, it was just, there was graffiti on the walls. It looked like an abandoned house, pretty much. Every single house down there, windows smashed, graffiti everywhere. and Something like you'd see in South Central LA in the Bronx or something like that, yeah. Literally, and I, oh yeah, the photos, you, you search those photos and you get a, a great idea. Some of those, you'd be like, where's the houses that they live in? Because it looks like they're smashed up and mm. that was basically that was a house a, a functioning house and in in amongst that we had one of the strongest tight 
communities I've ever been involved in. Mm. To this day, we still are the strongest tight-knit community I've ever seen. And that, that applies to any Aboriginal Build community. out of adversity, yeah. Absolutely, because then you've got to have each other's backs, right, in mm. every situation. And I think for us, every day was waking up and going to war with the government as such. And if the police were part of the government, then you were against us. And mm. I think... You know, just being 12 years old, you didn't understand. And by the time I was 14, I was so entrenched in that behaviour of you're the enemy and we're the other side and we're going to go to war with you. And every time we get a chance, we're going to do some damage. And, and it was pretty entrenched racism on, on part of the police in them stages, wasn't it? Yeah, like, I, mate, I got um, picked up once and um, taken out to Cornell, which is about a 40-minute drive, in a paddy wagon, um, handcuffed to the t- top with one hand. And I remember they were swinging that car from side to side, take the corners really hard. And by the time I got out there, I had cuts in my wrist and um, they ended up saying, walk home, you're black so-and-so and good luck getting home. I hope you get hit by something on the way home. And yeah. What does that do to a young a boy in these formative years about authority. What's the what does it do? Yeah, to, I, I got to a point where I didn't trust him, so I'd run off as soon as I saw the police because mm-hmm. I knew that they were going to, um, yeah, give you a few little uppercuts here and there, and mm. we accepted that as a normal behaviour. And if you think of that as normal behaviour from authority, what are you going to do within? You know, someone steps across your path, you want to. What's your problem, mate? You got a problem? Let's do it. And I think that's how we got built as a young kid, and it was just a terrible way to be built. 14 years of age, by the time you're 18, think about how dark and heavy you are as an individual. Yeah, under, underneath all of that, I had my mum's um, teachings mm. love, empathy, kindness, respect. In one, it sounds totally weird. And I, yeah, even when I started to commit crime, it was about survival, not hurting people, not yeah. taking from those that had taken yeah. from us. It was just about survival. Because I, I remember my, for myself, I was at the Derek Boys' home um, out at Windsor, and I remember uh, coming across, um, I remember Darren Trindle, not Daryl Trindle for the Darren. first time, and I, I formed a really good friendship with him, an Indigenous bloke, such a talented footballer. And um, and he took me down there. He took me to Redfern. He goes, mate, you'll be sweet down here. He goes, like, when we started getting into trouble, he said, these people will harbour you, they'll look after you. And I couldn't believe the camaraderie down there, you know, and I was really embraced because I was a crim, so I was against the the, the police and that, so I was really well embraced, and um, I loved it. I mm. love the spirit of that place. I love the camaraderie. And I've always said that Indigenous people have got solidarity by the balls. Mm, that's the greatest asset. One of the greatest assets, you know, is that sticking together. And that's what I found down there. And I, I felt really – I didn't feel, uh, uh, you know, any fear whatsoever. I felt right at home amongst those the people in um, Everly Street. You know? Absolutely. Anyone that's been to war could attest to this. When mm. you go to war – you have to rely on the person next to you mm. and, you know, to the point where they're spotting something, they're seeing something, they're hearing something, they're relaying that on and that's what we were doing as a community to make sure that we felt... Bonded by trauma. Yeah, and it's crazy, right, trauma bonding and, mm. and I'll learn about it a lot later on and then once you're bonded in that trauma um, sense, it's such an attachment to one another mm. that it becomes, you know, life-changing where, mm. as I said, to this day, every single one of those people has have um, a family, mm. an extended family, and I could walk down to their place, walk in, make a sandwich, and they wouldn't say, hey, what the heck are you doing? They'd be like, oh, how you been and what's mm. happening? Sit down. And it was just that sort of, you know, 
um, One big the block family, yeah. was four four streets, yeah. um, bounded by those four streets with the laneway down the middle. And you got to understand, there's no way you would have walked down that laneway unless you knew someone like you had mm. gone down with back in those days. You just wouldn't have made it back out of there, period. I remember old Ernie Hinton. Me and him done me and him done a bank one day together. And we got ourselves. He got in a bit of trouble in the bank, and I sort of got him out of there. And um, mate, I was celebrated in Redfern after that. Like mm. he went and told everyone, you know. And I can remember going back there, and um, and they were calling me Ernie's son. And I was saying, <laughs> "Oh, you're Ernie." Has, they 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 said, "You're Ernie's boy." And when you're caught a boy in jail, that's normally it's not a good terminology. That's normally yeah, someone that absolutely. an older bloke was having sex with. And I said, I'm not a boy, yeah. not a boy, but it was a, a dead set in, in, in indigenous culture. That's a really good terminology. It's like that you, you're his, that in reference to being a, a, his son. And it really held me well in jail amongst, you know, all the Kuris. They yeah. just respected me because of it. And I always had a good bond with all the Kuris. And when that racism shit kicked off in jail, I was always exempt from it mm. because of my connection with Ernie and Darren Trindle. And I don't know, just I respect. What I find with Indigenous, you know, the the brothers and sisters, you show them respect, you get it back. Absolutely. And I, I, you take the same thing in life, right? You mm. give respect, it's given back. And I think when this is, we spoke about it at the start, the energy levels, if we give respect to somebody else and they don't give it back, back in the day, you know, might have given them a attitude adjustment. Yeah. Um, these days, the yeah, and then these days it's like, you know, you're not worth my time, energy and effort and I'm going to step away from mm. it because I've identified that and mm. I've got better coping skills and that was the difference between who I am now versus that young kid growing up on Everly Street. Where does this come from, Jeff? This, like, you, you, you're, you're a searcher, right? And I always say, like, you're a searcher. You're always searching for knowledge um you you know you're searching for a better way where does it come from i think the survival side of things eh? to be honest because if i didn't make money that day where was i going to sleep and i slept under bridges at mm. points and times in my life and when i was young and i knew the difference between sleeping in a bridge and even even the cb hotel which i don't know if it's still around was i think it was 20 bucks or something 10 bucks a night there and i don't even know how i used to get it i can't even remember they must have just let me get it mm. and, as a young kid and I'd go and stay in that room bed bugs galore and mm. it was just you know but that was a luxury compared to being on under that bridge and I think mm. when you get to that level of life where survival um, instincts kick in you look at someone like now Bear Grylls people love that stuff because they see the survival instincts kicking of a human being and that's where I think I get it from the the um wanting to acquire the knowledge to be in the best position in any position that you stepped into within your life. You, the word trauma like has come up a few times in a conversation since we've uh, we've spoken now you know obviously it's tra traumatic by how you get treated by coppers and it's traumatic when you go through, uh, you know, your parents breaking up. What sort of effects in your formative years do you think trauma had on you? Probably numbed me to be able to see a way out. You become foggy mm. and you just go into survival mode and you think about daily survival rather than... But it was constant down there. It was constant mm. in Redfern, like, you know, the racism of the police, the treatment <clears throat> of your, your brothers and your sisters. It was rubbed in your face a lot. You, you, you become numb to it. And that this is what uh, this is what happens to people in life, right? Say it was in a relationship, this you know being abused or any situation where the, the abuse is taking place and you just sort of 
end up dealing with it in a specific way. You go through this vicious cycle and you wake up in the morning, you think about the problem, you go through that same little process again and all of a sudden you become so equipped to deal with that whole situation you put on a Mariah Carey song or whatever song you listen to you get mm. sad then you talk to you, you know, your family Richard Bond <laughs> <laughs> you go through that emotions and and then all of a sudden you're back it's you know you talk to i talk to you hey russ this is what's happened to me hey Kai, this is what's happened to me and all of a sudden you're back at square one and the next day starts again you go and mm. people would rather sit in the comfort of knowing how to deal with that vicious cycle than deal with the actual problem or situation that had come up and arisen and unpack what we call their invisible backpack and face that front on mm. and step away from that situation or experience and grow because they're fearful of one, the growth, two, having to deal with that whole situation. And we we as humans over play so many situations. Oh no, if I this is what's gonna happen and ninety nine point nine percent of these things that we think are going to happen just never happen within For sure. your life. My, my mate Mark Torrington talks about it all right. The mind can be a, a, a torture chamber when you fear something's gonna happen and it doesn't ever happen. But just a just a, um, a point you just touched on there, you know, you, it's going to be waiting for you the next day. I know through myself, you know, my drug use, I always knew I'd be using drugs to numb myself, but that fear of the next day was going to be there. And it was always the biggest fear, my own trauma, that I always knew that, that I was going to wake up and be faced with it. And I, I and for a drug addict like myself, man, I, I wanted to minimise that how, how long that time was. You know, it was like, bang... You know, uh, have a shot or whatever or whatever. What did you do to minimise that to 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 get out of that? Hundred percent. I was exactly like yourself. So I'd make. I, I started thinking, how can I make more money so I don't have to go through this traumatic effect of the experience myself? And people think, you know, those that are doing criminal acts, are, lock them up, throw away the key. I understand the principle and their thought process. It's not good to have something happen to you, your property, or anybody in in general, right? But in general, people are just thinking, this is my job. I've got to survive today and I need to get some food into my mouth, roof over my head. And don't get me wrong, there's some people that just go to a whole new level and each today in this world, I'm not here to judge anybody. But in general, I just went to a level where that was just normal behavior and I was so comfortable with it that mm, I'd rather be with that than go and get a tax file number because I, oh, I talked myself out of it. Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't have mm. a resume. What job could I ever get? And I realized that I had so many skills and qualities that were transferable over into the real world once you do that, you realize you break the world down into a simplified version rather than overthinking everything and you know, getting into a position where fog just becomes a huge part of it, which then pushes you back into exactly, as you said, that vicious cycle that you know how to deal with and you know, that's going to be how you deal with life in general for the rest of your life. I was accepted into the Red Firm community and were bonded by crime and trauma. You know, a lot of the guys that I was out at Derek had faced like the abuse that I'd suffered and it was one of those things that was unspoken about, but we all knew what happened. We all knew we'd, we'd been through some pretty sure. traumatic things, something that we didn't talk about. Um, we knew it was there and, 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 and we were, I don't, you know, we were pretty angry sort of people who were, you know, had so much disrespect for their authority because, you know, when you're in the Indigenous community and in the community of Redfern, respect is, is, is a must. Absolutely. And, you know, how did you deal with that? As much as my mother had taught me those valuable, you know, assets, qualities, um, traits that I wanted to live by, 
think underneath, you know, I was a very angry person. You're and angry at what? What were you angry at? I, you blame the world for your whole situation, and then you blame the world for not acknowledging, you know, people that just human beings and how how you, horrible they can be. Yeah, how, how we were being treated as people and. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, did you understand why they were treating you the way they they no, were treating you? Not at all. And you know, you got to have context. Right, before I went down and lived in Redfern, I'd never get pulled up. I'd walk the streets. I'd walk up to Redfern. I'd walk back to my home. I was, I don't know, a thousand meter walk from Elizabeth Street to Everly Street. Go from my father's to my mother's and back and forth at that point in time. And I think as a very young kid, and I'd never once get pulled up. And once I moved into Redfern to be bashed by police, and and this ain't all police. Understand this? I'm not knocking, no. but it's just as it's proven facts of the times that no. things happened of that nature. Obviously, our community at the time was, you know, you could say at war with the police. There was riots, constant riots down there, constant brick throwings, burning of police cars in the street, um, police officers running off the whole community chasing them. Like, you think about that in general. It's insane. Yeah, and right. 12 years old. And no wonder they wanted to get back. And when they got the opportunity, they were going to give us some as well. So, mm. mate, if they, I saw them, I think, and you yeah, those build-ups just led to me being an angry person. I wouldn't... I'd say to police, I'd be 100 miles and running, bang, gone. Mm. I wouldn't even be in trouble. I wouldn't be wanted so for they were, anything. they were representative of pain and trauma. Absolutely. And no one wants to... You know, if you have trauma, you, you want to keep going back to the trauma. As soon as... Yeah. I, I knew I was going to get some trauma as soon as they pulled up, so I was off and running and... So we spent our life running from trauma. Man. Absolutely. Literally. And that built me as a person instead of sitting down and dealing with it. And if I had, was equipped, I would have sat and said, why... why is, you know, as a young kid... Imagine asking a police officer, "Why do you feel the need to treat me like this?" And mm. why, you know, is it? And it would have been a racial slur if you did. You know what I mean? Because that was the opinion of them. And then they being even then being able to help say, "Hey, you know, we're all human beings." And if I could talk how I did then, the person I am now to, and instill that in that young kid, it would be unbelievable. But we just don't get taught that. And we had so many, so much more anger within the community that I only fed off. The, the energy within the community. and Why is it, you know, I grew up at Mount Druitt and we had very similar things happen to us out there because we were houses, we are housing commission thing. The coppers thought it was there, they were entitled to bashes and, and, and because they, were, they weren't, you know, I think none of the coppers that were employed in them areas were from our area, you know yeah. what I mean? And Because and, if you grew up in that area, you wouldn't want to be a cop, wouldn't, your house wouldn't end up in a yeah. good state. So they felt it was their need to discipline us and punish us and that for, and most of us had never done anything wrong at that stage. Mm. I, it's funny because we do a lot of programs with young kids now and some of those are ex-officers or officers and you sit down and able to have a conversation with them and explain something and they it's because they come from a background where they just don't understand it. And it's like saying, let's go talk to a neuroscientist about molecules and how they function, right? People just get lost in the conversation. Mm. Um, so to, we're trying to tell somebody, a neuroscientist, how we feel at a layman's terms. And once that neuroscientist is able to understand it and project that on layman's terms, then you're going to get, get a better outcome on the other side from whoever's involved in the conversation. The but interpreter. what's happening is they're saying, you need to live our way. It's the right way. And maybe it's, uh, you know, you're looking at it, there's less stress in it and, and so forth. But if that hasn't been a habit and ritual of an individual... 
And people got to understand the parents, if they haven't taught that kid how to be, you know, mm. swearing's normal, committing crimes normal, drugs and alcohol normal, domestic violence, whatever it was within the community, then that becomes accepted as absolute normal. And I, mm. yeah, it was a badge of honour to go to jail, boys home. And mm. now I knew when I went to boys home, everyone was going to be there. You reckon mm. I was scared? I didn't care one bit. Yeah. So, how old were you around this time? I would have been probably around. Yeah, teenage years, 16. And uh, the riots kicked off in Redfern um, as a result of the police. Can you just sort of explain what happened to TJ Hickey? Yeah, so, yeah, there's been different versions of us, of that event, obviously from the police and the thought process of how it happened and how the bike ended up and all of the, the above. So um, the family unfortunately uh, still fighting um they're my cousin um his mother gail is um my first cousin so police had in their words it said that they were um just trying to pull him over hit him um accidentally and then the bikes you know obviously he's gone so he was in a police chase was he in their words they were just trying to have a conversation with him um from what i gather and basically somehow the police cars hit the back wheel of the bike he's so he was riding a motorbike or a push push bike and then basically um landed impaled on a fence and um at 16 years of age he yeah unfortunately was no longer here from that just one issue and you know you think about something of that nature and the anger that's already within the community that just sets off the volcano and you know we had so many different incidents david gundy at the time um shot by police um looking for um johnny porter johnny porter who had shot a police officer at the time so that was retribution so the 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 shooting of i just want to touch on two things i want to go back yeah as a result of uh tj he died it it sort of brought on some pretty heavy duty rights that went for quite some time absolutely and they were like you you got to think of young kids throwing Molotov cocktails, bricks, anything and everything that you could possibly do, covering your head up. Think about the thought process of a 12, 14-year-old kid. Most 12, 14-year-old kids are in bed ready to go to school the next day and you've got this community absolutely fighting against police who are trying to get into the area of Redfern <clears throat> and then you've got the whole community fighting back and it went for a while. It went for a few days, didn't it? Yeah, and, and I've heard Gary Jubilant's um, interview with one of those riding officers who actually got hit. And, you know, on the other side, that's somebody's father as well. And mm. we can get to a better solution through conversation. And I think... Mm. Um, and that's, there was no conversation there? No, nah, at, at that point in time, there was, was just the all. police were just not, you know, and vice versa. The community didn't want to deal with the police. And over time... Because um, there was no trust there. Yeah, there was no trust. It's like any, no right? No trust, no respect. Whether you cheat on someone whether you hit someone and whether you steal from somebody the trust gets broken and i think once you you know you've assaulted um young kids and we know that identi- we identify the uniform as being hey run from that because this is They're what's going to happen pain and yeah trauma. no one wants to be able to sit down with that person and have that conversation and uh, you know that, that's why i always say big shout out to shane because he shane did, phillips yeah an he, amazing guy he got he got smashed by the community i don't talk to him and whatever else but he, he underlying you know, and I think I don't. This isn't me. Hey, Shane Phillips is a, a is a community leader in Redfern, uh, an elder that tribal warrior. Tribal warrior that is. Can you just sort of give us a bit of a rundown on Shane Phillips? Yeah, so he's he's pop man. They were unbelievable people, and amongst all that chaos, they'd have a centre down there. They get the kids down there, and they you know had faith in in God and and so forth, and they. 
they didn't push it. They just said, here, the doors are open, come down, have a yarn, listen up. Mm. And they were just beautiful people. And that obviously rubbed off on Shane. And Shane, over time, recognised the... Um, you know, there was better solutions in sitting down and having a conversation than trying to throw a brick or, or you know, set fire to a police car. And I think um, he started to bring in CDEP, which meant we were cleaning up the community, painting the community, fixing the broken windows, and we're starting to, you know, feel part of normal everyday life. And yeah. I think, um, oh, yeah. He's I, sort of the conduit, wasn't he? Uh, and man, he's like, to me, and he's all, he knows that. I, I've always got time, energy, and I effort for him. I won a I won a thousand bucks on a boxing fight, and um, when the Lismore floods were on, and I went up there and to drop some stuff off, and here's Shane Phillips just unloading all the cars, and that's the type of guy he is, you know. Yeah, and he's always willing, always able. And, and people will burn you, you know. And, and Imagine how many times then, he's been burnt. Oh, me, me and him have had good conversations, and um, same thing, just about dealing with it, and same thing, not carrying anger about the community. How can we show and role model to be better? So saying, uh, if you and if you don't want to um, support me, stuff is more so. How can we conduct ourselves as role models or leaders, mm. and make sure our voice is continuously heard, and we can keep going down the path, no matter how many times we get smashed from the side. And I think that was, you know, me as a young kid, no matter how many times was he a role model to you? Oh, absolutely, man. Him, Uncle Dave Bell. There was Uncle so Dave many. Bell's another legend. They, you know, a lot of them didn't even realise just how they can rob Welsh, Tiger, Tiger Bales, Cecil Patton, these old um, uh, Charlie Perkins. Man, they taught me some values of life and strength because they were real freedom fighters. They were a lot of those were part mm. of that initial, you know, um, freedom fighter crew. And man, they, they taught me values that have stuck with me for life to be strong, but also have a presence of sit down with the people at the table who can decision makers and talk on a level that, where both people can come to a mutual agreement. So what do you think those, what did those rights achieve? You think it's creating a voice or achieve for us, I feel, was that people then sat in deeper judgment of the community and underlying... Is that when they come in and bulldoze? After they come down and bulldoze a lot in... They had sold it off at one point in time, time or, you know, to redevelop, I should say, um, land council at the point in time, or uh, Aboriginal um, housing, I think it was, had done that at one point in time, and they sort of started to move everybody out of Redfern. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of people who didn't want to leave. Um, they then sort of dispersed those out into that, the community. Was that, what was the reason for <laughs> them dispersing the people out of there? I think, you know, you look back on it, and I don't know the underlying reason. I can't. You can only speculate. And to me, I just think maybe some people thought that there was a better future for us as people. And we, yeah, underlying, we could sit down and we can be beautiful people. And well, yeah, for us, and I think you look back on the history, and this is factual. When you take only what you need from this planet and you respect everybody in that process, then you have an, an environment where everyone can thrive and, and sit in calmness and peace, in a yeah. peace. And when that gets disrupt, disrupted, like anything, if I walk into your house, you're going to say, hey, what's going on? What, who are you? And I think that's just where um, maybe someone had that thought process. And we're back, you know. Was it commun- effective? Do you <clears throat> think it was effective? I think now they've rebuilt the community. A lot of people have gone out and got jobs. The younger generation, have, a lot more of those had finished their HSC than our generation. A lot more of the traumas being dealt with in a way where we self-empowered ourselves. I think that's very important. Something that I've done and I'll pass on to everyone. Oh, you, you're big on education. You, you are in control of your journey. 
And until you stop focusing on the external, external um, you know, environments that you believe are causing you stress, learn to remove yourself from that situation. What's your time, energy and effort being put into? And if that's not serving you on an inner peace, happiness, quality of life, whatever values you want within your life, step away from the situation as quickly as you stepped into it. Right, 16, you're in Boys Home. Was it Mount Penang, Frank Baxter? Uh, Mount Penang. What was your experience there? Man, I think it taught me a lot of good values that I'd never seen in my life. To be you would have excelled because you're such a good sportsman. Yeah. Absolutely, and it was a very sporting environment. So you had the opportunity. I think I played a sport every single day. And I was playing basketball one day. You would have been playing rap, everything you do. Yeah, like- you would have been representative marble throwing. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Represent, representative bocce, <laughs> state <laughs> champion bocce player. <laughs> darts. <laughs> Card throwing. I felt bad because we used to play darts out the back room and you'd get an extra can of or something. Like they had these bags full of goodies and I'd, I'd be like, they'd be like, Morgs can't play. <laughs> <laughs> but like you look back what on is it. that with indigenous yeah. people that you're just freaky sportsmen, freaky musicians? What is it? I think you look, you know, even about what we just spoke Is it a genetic thing or what is it? I spoke about with Redfin as well. There's good, bad in everything, right? And I think you look back on our history and the survival skills of our gener- you know, generation after generation, being able to hunt out in the bush and the awareness of what's moving, what's present, what tracks are there, the noises you're hearing, all of those things. So do you think it's an awareness when you play sport? Absolutely, It's just man. a heightened awareness. Man, like it's just – and you know – you know, and we, it, obviously over time, sports science has taken a huge role, say in football, how to turn someone's shoulders so you can then step in, in the opposite direction. We were doing that, I think, way before sports science came out, and we didn't never realise what we did, but we so sort of we just knew, oh, if I turn him this way, I can sidestep this way, and he's mm. gone. The boys' hands himself, what led you to being there? Survival first, just breaking in the canines with my brother to eat food. Straight yeah, up, wow. and, and that's what led you there, breaking in it. Yeah, we and we sort of, you know, um, bucket of red frogs or, or a box of red frogs, more yeah. so. Opened it up to eat the red frogs and found a bunch of money, and I was like, oh wow! And that money, I don't recall how long it helped us survive for, but on a food level, that that really played a huge role in me understanding. Hey, money must be in shops everywhere, mm. and then we started this life of crime where it was a lot of breaking in and then. Yeah, you, know, you go through that progression where I learned to turn the alarms off, drop in through the roof, all of that sort of stuff. And you learn a lot of that in the boys' homes too, Absolutely. don't you? It's like a college. Man, and I was learning even outside of that. So I was the people that you surround yourself with, you elevate too if you listen and learn from the person. Mm. Unfortunately, it was destructive, not constructive. I learned how to steal Porsches from the boys from Redfern Absolutely. at Derrick Boys' home. I, was, I, I could just steal the old bomb cars who jiggled the key. I learnt from them because I found the boys from Redfern, Newtown and Erskineville, they were just the next level. Absolutely. They were really, they were really the top of the chain sort of Absolutely. car thieves. And, and, you know, you guys were doing breaking in it. You're stealing Porsches and breaking in the sports doors and... Yeah, and then then that escalated to duty three freeze, and then it went you know bank snatches, and that evolution, a lot of that stuff. I was very innovative, so I was constantly thinking, how could I make more money in a short period of time, so I didn't have to do it more often than mm. not. I, it's hard. It's not easy money. Yeah, and I, I didn't deal drugs at the time because I'd seen a lot of people within our area when I was a young kid, and it steered me Decimated. away from it. As he, yeah, like a lot of the young kids had 
um, OD'd and died at this point in time when mm. we were probably about 14. Mm. And I was still too young to really get into it. And I was like, oh, man, that scares me, you know, stuff that. I'm not going to go down that pathway. Mm. Plus, uh, you know, just didn't like the look of how they, when they were on drugs, how they were mm. conducting themselves. No control. And I was like, nah, stuff that I'd rather stay down this pathway and i was constantly learning how to evolve in crime and then i was trying to evolve that even more so myself so you know just to be able to turn alarms off in places meant that we had more time to do what we wanted in a particular situation mm. whereas people would smash and grab and the alarm be going off i could turn it off and we could sit there all night if we wanted to mm. and clean the whole joint out so that to me was I was trying to survive at its highest level. Mm. And honestly, I used to wake up and think it was just normal. I was yeah. going to work every day like everybody yeah. else. Why are you judging me and this is how I'm That's surviving? Right. I, I, I used to class it. The terminology I'd used to rob a bank was I'm going to work. And we just everything was progression. It went from those breaking in into duty threes, you know, late at night and uh, the allegations of watch robberies, duty freeze, cleaning that whole thing mm. out, and then selling those on to somebody mm. else, um, into bank snatches where we're running in, uh, walking in, snatching money off the counters. Um, I got charged for a bunch of these. Uh, I remember, so I it was highly publicised when you guys were pulling out front of the banks and um, and you were running in. Or you had a bit, there was a well-known team from Redfern that were uh, that were doing that. Uh, I I always look back, and it, this is even crazy to think about. You'd go and meet up at the top of Redfern, and you know people would just go, "Hey, Russ, what's happening? You want to come out with us for the day?" Yeah. And I had a more crew that I sort of ran with but in general people would meet at the top and not shit you know just go out get a car go and do what they needed to do and come back and that was just normal operations for the day and mm. you never thought anything bad of it you look back on it it's insane the young mm. kids 14 15 16 years of age going out committing these crimes mm. who does that normal kids are sitting in the school at the same time mm. And you've got kids driving these cars that, you know, do 300 clicks an hour through peak hour traffic getting absolutely, you know, it's just insane. The the car chases back in them days were were hectic. As you said, I think in our area it was totally different. We had good drivers. It rubbed off. You'd know the other people and Mm. we'd get in a situation. There was a block from Redfern all the way around Oak. Um, McDonald Town, Erskineville, back to Redfern was the block. You jump in the same car and you try and beat each other's time. Mm. And that, you know, you think about that, it's like Formula One. We're trying to beat one another's time. And for the purpose of making sure when we went out and operated, it was we like were, training. Yeah, it was literally training. And, you know, it's just in, they, it's fu- not funny, but you look at it now, you drive that same block, there's a million um, speed humps, and they actually blocked off at Erskineville Station where you can't turn that block anymore. Mm. And, like, to have that impact on council, police, and everybody of that nature, the community, it's insane to think mm. that these, you know, me included, 14 year old kids were having that impact on the community. And at the same time, you're operating thinking was the community acting that particular way mm. which built on two totally different levels and until we understand that kid and we seek to understand what's behind those actions show me a kid that's doing these things and i'll show you a kid with an underlying issue and that Absolutely. underlying issue is always trauma until your trauma is addressed with it the problem so now he's putting the speed humps and that in there million percent because you can do all you want you can tell them not to do it you can give them sentences you can man, you got sentences i got sentences and the sentence didn't do anything to me and that transition mm. from there into boys homes and, and an escalation from from the boys home there comes an escalation in crime and what was yours 
and we went to bank um, snatches at that point in time where you'd walk in the bank people deposit money you'd walk up behind you'd give a little signal bang jump over to like pretty much jump over the top of the person or by the side of the person snatch the money run off with 20 30 grand five grand whatever it was and mate people do like well i got charged for a bunch of them in one day so you'd go out in a car and you would go out you know like work nine in the morning or even earlier um, nine o'clock they'd open and then by three o'clock be finished and you might do x amount in that period of time and i think you know as i said i deserve time for a bunch of those hence why i'm speaking about it but the stories you'd hear of this nature was just normal behavior and imagine just the trauma that you left that trail of destruction through that yeah because then people don't know if your arms or not do they 100 percent. and the people that like you jump over the top of someone you come out of nowhere and yeah, you know, that's in the bank, the teller, the person involved, the loss of the money. I think now I've got a business, you know, that might have been that person's whole week's takings and they were on their last dollar and I've jumped across and snatched that money. And, mm. you know, at the time, point in time, you're just thinking, great, I've, I'm, I'm surviving this week. You know, it's just oh, terrible. Oh, 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 you look back on it, sad, it is sad that, you know, maybe I caused businesses to shut down. Maybe that person to this day still carries that trauma. And I don't feel great yeah. about that ever. So, But when you understand trauma, that's when you can have empathy and compassion. Like, I didn't understand trauma for a long time. Absolutely. A million. And that's why I hadn't dealt with it for myself mm. and stepped away from how I did. And once I did that, I realized that I'd inflicted that trauma onto other people. And here's a message for anyone of a victim of crime, and I'll put it out there. You can contact me on my social media and I'll reach back out and I'll work with you free of charge to get you in the best position around your inner peace, happiness and quality of life that you deserve. Try and get back as close to the person that you used to be if you are impacted by trauma. Please don't hesitate to reach out and have that convo. Mm, Likewise. Now, let's talk about escalation of prison. What was your first time like like in prison? Uh, Can I tell you? Yeah. I remember meeting you. You were at the MRC and I was at the MRP and we were going out there to play football. And you yeah. and, and Kevin, you walked up and said g'day to Kevin Hinton. Yeah, well, I'd gone to prison p- before that. There was an incident at Mount Penang. A bloke walked past, had thrown something to me. I um, went so you back. Went, you went, went there. You, we went from Mount Penang to prison. Yeah, so I went back down to Gosford Court for the charges. A $20 stick, as far as I remember. Mm. It might have been bigger. I'm not too sure. I can't even remember. And um, <laughs> that's a f- like. Not funny, but it's crazy that we were that entrenched. You didn't even care whether you don't. I don't know any of the finer details. I couldn't tell you dates on when I was charged. Just had no meaning. I was just in survival mode, and nothing was. You know, it wasn't a birthday. It wasn't a my first job. It wasn't. So I didn't know the dates or my first car. I was just constantly going through these firsts, but they were so traumatic that I just wanted to brush them off and never remember them again. And it's a disassociation, isn't it? Absolutely. And I remember. Going to Gosford Court, I pled guilty to it, and, and even though I hadn't done it back in the day, you take the rap and yeah. didn't say nothing about the bloke. And yeah, it's mine, all good. And even though they knew because they seen him get it or something, he stashed it, got it away to me as we walked past one another. Um, and then I got caught with it, took the rap for him. Long story short, the judge said, Mate, you're getting, I think it was one week in jail. And I was like, yeah, whatever, sweet. I was already in Penang. I was serving three years for um, bank snatches at the time, a bunch of bank snatches in the one day. And it was like, ah, one week, I don't even care. Long story short, I ended up in a position where he said, mate, the, I went back to the sales and officer goes, you know where you're going for your one week, day?" And I was like, one week? Yeah, I'm going back to Mount Penang. Yeah, he goes, no, nah, mate, you're 18. 
He goes, you're going to jail, mate, for one week. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, mate, get in the bull wagon, you're going to Long Bay. Same process, similar to yourself for us. I went mm. down there and I remember I was I was blessed by a chance in, in one sense, whereas they said I, I didn't know where I was going. I just remember being in the clinic and I remember my brothers telling me a story about anyone wants your shoes, make sure you understand they're trying to roll you. Mm. So a bloke asked me, hey, do you mind if I have a look at your shoes, brother? And I was like, yeah, man. And I gave him one shoe and I made sure I gave him my left one so I could kick him with my right right, right foot. And literally as I handed it to him, I put it down on the ground and as he bent down to pick it up, I kicked him so hard. He ended up on the floor and laying there having a bit of a snooze. You're 18 years old, you're in jail. Did you encounter... Any racism or a lot of racism in jail? I saw it, I heard it, um, and then tried to educate the other person on the other side and the effects of it that it was having on the individuals involved or even myself. And then because I had the respect in that world, people would then start to be willing to learn. Hmm. And I think until we're willing to learn as a nation, you know, on a wider scope um, around different components of life, and it could be, you know, anything from crime through to um, how you treat your partner, how to, um, how you run business, and we're listening to these people with the experiences that could help people grow, we're never going to see the growth happen. Yeah. How much jail did you, you sort of you do before the penny started to drop for you? I reckon it was probably when I was 18. I went in for a um, car chase, some breaking in as John Laws's um, Porsche was involved at the time, and uh, I I think I started to think to myself, how could I get out of this? Not get out of it, but more so, how could I shift the direction of life? Why are people being able to, you know, my thing as a young kid was a lot of luxury cars and that led down to the path of Ram Raids, the Porsches and so forth. And I think, how could I do that on a level where other people are doing it? What are they doing and how, what do I need to learn to be that person? And how can I draw the line in the sand um, to be you know, the first person from my family, my culture, as an example, to really strive towards that? And you know, it's something that I, I continue to strive towards because I want to show people a better way of life for us especially yeah. as Aboriginal people, but defined by ourselves. Sometimes it's not a material thing, a financial thing, but more so just a connection thing to what's important to yourself. And if that's money or finances or, or something of that nature, pursue it relentlessly and don't yeah, um, continue to learn and grow uh, on that journey. Yeah. So we sort of fast-track a little bit and you um, ended up in prison in Melbourne. How did that happen? What was the story there? Yeah, we went down, um, a bunch of us, four of us, went down to Melbourne, ended up planning a bank robbery, committing that bank robbery whilst under surveillance. Um, obviously, being under surveillance, we thought we'd got away with it. Um, at the time, I felt like we were under surveillance. We had a huge conversation around that, continued to do the bank robbery. Amazingly, got a, got away, even though we had been watched by the police doing the bank robbery. And then, at that point in time, was arrested in town. And I think that was my life-changing and defining moment. I sort of realised, I think, even when I went to the custody centre, it was called a submarine because it was sort of shaped like a submarine, yellow inside, lights were on constantly, and you spent about two weeks there. It might have even been a month. And by the end of that month, man, I was just like... I'd already, I'd only been out six months from a five-year sentence, and I just went, man, I've got kids. My kids are... Yeah, I was really starting to connect with my kids. I was really starting to see a different way to life. And I'd learn a lot from the time I was 18 to I was probably 35, I think, at that point in time. 
And I just went, man, something's got to change. If you know, do you want to keep living this life? So that month in there gave me time to reflect. Um, even though I was amongst everybody, I was really reflective in that moment. And I think then coming out of it, went to a trial for the bank robbery because I was a chance of actually beating that. Paid a huge amount of money for the trial, which <laughs> paid paid to get found guilty. Literally, during that trial, a mobile phone was found in my cell. Unfortunately, the uh, I took the rap for it. Yep, sweet. Went to segregation, and I think that did the biggest favour on the back end of my thought process at that time because I was able to reflect on absolutely everything. Do you want this life? What yeah? You know, what about your kids? What's this? You know, what's it given to you? This life and all of the above. And I just realised, man, now's that time that you've been talking about it. Let's start creating an action. And by the time I got found guilty, I travelled back in the back of the truck and I literally was in the truck. It was late at night. I was the only one in the truck and I literally had a, a breakdown, meltdown, whatever you want to call it. Started to cry to myself and I didn't even know why I'd done it. The amount of time I spent three months, I think, in that segregation unit, and there was just nothing. So I was sitting with my own thoughts. I was thinking about the change. How could it happen? I just got to a point where I had a crew that were, you know, part of the furniture in my own um, environment since I was a kid. Um, went back, and you know, things didn't work out how we wanted to, and um, they went their way. I went my way in my head. And I just went, you know, I'm going to do my thing. I'll let you do your things. I wish you all the best in life. Um, and I moved on at that point in time. I made a conscious decision to say, by the end of this sentence, I'm never coming back. And um, if they were the people that had my back but didn't have my back at the point in time I felt I needed them, I'm going to move on from this life. Did you have a plan to, to sort of break away from it? Did you create a plan? No, really. I walked out of Segura and basically there was a bloke and he said, mate, you look like a smart young fellow. Literally, that was his words. And I was like, oh, I'll do my best and, yeah, just convo. And he said, mate, I'm from the uni and would you be interested in a university you know, degree? And I was like, mate, I can't do that. I, I haven't got X, Y and Z here. How am I going to do it? And he explained it. I said, show me the courses. And the rest was history. I started studying. And Where did you start studying? Um, nutrition science. And I just started on the back end, I'd done a lot of business studies, computer studies, MYOB, all during the time that I was in custody. And I figured this was starting to mold into a new, yeah, a new animal and a new animal around business and, and using the same skill set, but just in the right way. And off we went. And I think once you um, commit to something, like, yeah, as you know, um, if it was a bank robbery back in the day, I was committed, I'm going in full ball, 100 miles an hour, giving it everything I possibly had and I, I used the same sort of mentality into this sort of focus of a new life um, and everything I did on that during that sentence was intentional mm. every single course TA so I could teach people I had a, a bit of a plan I didn't know what it was going to look like and we started out when I came home then got back into personal training and it's transitioned into where I am today, the the mental health and wellbeing consultant that travels around the globe delivering these programs, changing individuals' mindsets around what they can believe and achieve and helping them identify that they're just existing, most people are within this life, and what you want out of life and then bridging the gap in between those two. And that's defined by them and guided by us. And I think the clarity in that cell over the three months, when I look back on it, gave me that total direction of where I am today today I, I had an experience myself i um i spent nine months in segro in in jail up in berrimer and darwin yep. and man i man, I, 
I came out so I'll be honest I didn't even want to get out of there I was that focused and that you know what I mean that determined and that and, and more so that at peace I think if you had a camp where you had people to go out into a bush and sit mm. down under the stars and just reflect um, and maybe do that for a six week course or something as mm. you know juvenile offenders even adult offenders and be able to sit there and reflect on where you are, where you want to head in life, the trauma that you're causing. So I really, you know, as you know, that inner peace, the clarity, the the calmness in amongst that segregation unit, it's so quiet unless someone blows up. I thought about every opportunity in life, everything I've been taught, what could I get out of life, what did I want out of life? And I realised, shit, most of us don't even think about what a perfect life to ourselves looks like, nor do we go out and create it. And I sat down and said, what do you want? What do you want to achieve? When do you want it by? And these things started to manifest. And I you know, I, I turned into that beast with inside that system. And I think if you give people time to reflect on a situation, you might actually get a better outcome from the individual. Yeah, my words exactly. And um for anyone that doesn't know, a segregation uh, unit is a punishment unit where you are locked in your cell 23 hours a day. You're isolated from the general population of the jail, normally in a different section completely um, with a small yard if you're lucky, and the uh, screws come out and give you exercise one hour. It's, it's basically punishment for the good order and discipline of the jail. I think um, COVID was a classic example of um, how people... <laughs> cop a bit of a dose of uh, segregation i think it changed a, a lot of the attitudes about people um in regards to have a you know thinking it's a great idea to get people locked up COVID was a classic example and yeah especially on social media we're blown up about not getting out of your house and all of the above try, locking right? in your, like, try being locked in your bathroom for 12, 24 hours a day and literally being in that situation and yeah john killick was uh, the situation when he escaped by the helicopter and i was there we were locked in for i think over a week and you know you're just in this cell and yeah, as I said, people then started to get a dose of what it was like. You can't create a solution to a problem by locking somebody in a cell like a caged animal and not giving them some sort of education to create change and expect someone to come out and be different. COVID was huge, and if we don't learn from that how we treat other human beings, we're going to go down a dangerous path of bringing out monsters. And, you know, you see the streets of Sydney at the moment, they're lit up and people are just disappearing, and some innocent bystander is going to cop one of those flying bullets at any any time um, soon. People do go crazy from it, but I think once you you embrace it and you like you know I used it for like it was like a meditation practice for me for nine months you know and I Absolutely. yeah and I I love that isolation I love the fact that um, that the screws weren't controlling me or as much as they were controlling me in my head I believe that they weren't they, they, there was no rules in there Absolutely. and you got nothing there's no TVs there's no nothing in there it's a pretty blank cell toilet and bed and you know and that's about it a few books if you're lucky. And it goes both ways, right? You, you get the blokes in there that just bang continuously on the door, kick. When the officers bring the food, they'll punch it back out at them and they'll throw water at them and all of the above. So you got two totally different levels. I found when you're in jail, you walk out in the yard and someone wants to grab you and have a conversation, shoot a basketball, play cards, whatever it was. Um, and in general, being in segregation gives you that time where you can reflect. And if you do that for five years where you're out in the yard, you don't have the time to think about what you actually done, mm. you know, all the crime that you're in for. 
Um, and usually most people are, out, are two out, which means there's two of you in a cell, and you, the conversation is usually about what's on TV or you know something that's happened yeah. to someone in the yard or something of that Not nature. That day, thing. yeah, there's no depth in it. That's and, and to be able to reflect, I sat and I read books, you know, everything from ancient Egypt through to whatever was basically on, on the yeah. trolley that would come in. And I was very lucky at the time that I was just weird. I was reading all of these things that I felt were like plug-ins to the holes that were missing in components of my life. And I, by the time I came out of there, I was ready to kick ass. And um, by chance, you know, obviously the professor was there and the rest is history. How, how long in total did you spend in adult jails? Probably a good 12 to 15 years. Mm. Yeah, it's I long think. enough, isn't it? And it's long enough. I, people, I see people these days, these young people trying to glorify prison, and I, and I often say, you know, you'll get over the funny side of it after about five years it no longer the longer becomes funny it becomes you know quite an embarrassment and absolutely you've got to ask yourself and this is for the young kids and uh, this next generation coming through especially with all of these postcode wars the stabbings that we've seen and so forth you're fighting over over what when you get to an older age just look back and you think far out i wish i'd utilize my time and life a lot better but yeah, you know, a message to all the kids out there thinking it's cool to go in and out at some point in time you you'll mature as an adult and your emotional iq will change and you'll start to shift your behaviors mm. my advice to yourself shift them before you even get to that point because we the path you're headed down is destructive and one that will inf- infect your mental health and when i say infect your behaviours, your traits, your habits will be there even after you've stepped away from crime. I've been away 13 years, I think now, going on 13 years, and um, there's little habits, and no doubt I've spoken to you, Russ, about mm. this, and you know, you'd probably have, uh, you've said you've had heaps. And whether it's the way you look on the street, whether it's the way you conduct yourself, mm. there's little traits that stick with you forever, and you know, um, that impacts your mental health, and it's just not a cool thing when you get older, I can no. guarantee you that. I know from my own experience, I've sort of done some counselling in regards to what's classed as uh, prison trauma, you know, and how people talk to me and how I react to things. And so that, I've been out of prison five years and I'm still unpacking that stuff, you know. So I've picked up a lot of toxicity from there that I don't think serves me well. As soon as someone raises their voice around me, I'm like, I'll settle down like, and mm. I'll try and sort of speak to them in a calmer mm. manner because my n- initial trigger is to like bang, you know, jump up, mm. what's going on, you know, and puff the chest out. I'm ready to go to war mm. with whoever's in that space. And I think that was a thing, yeah, as you know, be prepared for anything and everything at any point in time when you were sitting, you know, sitting down, making food, whatever it was while you're in the prison. That as soon as someone raises their voice, it triggers me in a sense, and I have mm. to challenge that initial trigger to make sure that I respond and say, "Hey, what's going on? What? You know, how can we resolve this issue a lot better?" Um, a solution is found through conversation, a, a mature and civil conversation. Mm. Let's bring it back down to that level, and mm. yeah, these little things. As I said to you younger kids coming through, trying to sleep at night, you hear a noise, bang, you wake up, mate. I live in a set of flats, and I could hear a noise, and I still wake up. That's that's not um, a good quality of life. And I've done so much work on myself and I'm still doing it. And I'm improving, but it's just taken so much to rewind all those ingrained um, destructive habits and rituals that I've picked up on that journey. Did you complete your nutrition degree whilst you were in prison? I 
finished once I went home. No, I finished when I was, whilst I was there. Sorry, yeah, that's great. Oh, that must well, have been a massive achievement. I say that because I, I actually got out on bail whilst I was down there, which is unbelievable. So I ended up going to uni whilst I was on bail, hence why I thought I'd finished it outside. But I actually ended up going back in before that finished. That must have been a great achievement to be able to sort of go, like, from coming from the block. He's the kid from the block with the troubled upbringing and everything like that. Mate, you must have been so proud of yourself and your family must have been so proud of you. I think, yeah, that's a... I know I was and I know that. it. Man, I struggled and this is for anybody before, you know, people that know me know that I operated a different sort of level or tried to and give it everything I got mm. and I struggled. Same thing. It's just... it was, And it's like anything new that you take on. You, you're learning... Yeah, you know, the human body and how it functions and some of the words were just unbelievable yeah. so don't be afraid to step into that fear and that's where growth sort of occurs and you leave behind the old version of yourself so mate please you know do yourselves a favor step into that fear and be appreciated the biggest person to celebrate your journey should be yourself and the more you do that and love yourself the more self-love self-care self-worth starts to come and be a huge part of your life on a regular basis and the only thing on the back end of that is an abundance of happiness and inner peace and i think that's some of the greatest things you could ever aim for within this life just lean into that fear groups on the other side man yeah for sure and then for myself it was that um just getting out i remember going to rehab and i wanted to go to rehab for myself because i needed to get some living skills i didn't have many living skills and um, i was four years clean and but just i realized once i apply myself to my passion i'm on the right track 100 percent. find what you're passionate about you'll never work a day in your life you always sort of hear that Mm. and i can guarantee the people that you know identified that a long time ago i've stepped into that changing and saving lives is our mission statement for our business Mm. and mate i wake up every single day and i don't think i'm working i just get out and love what i do and the opportunity you know you think about the mental health issues the suicide rates across the world across the globe and being able to impact and affect that by your life experiences or you know sitting in those segregation cells the court cells the you know the life experience of running into banks and all of the above what are the lessons I learned in that journey that are transferable into life? And there's so many. Mm. And the perseverance, whether you were trying to rob the bank versus the adversity of then being arrested, the trauma in that in that experience. And as much as you know, people always say, oh, I'll lock them up and throw away the key. Think about the trauma. Uh, I was like 14-year-old. Man, I've got photos, and I can share that with you, and I don't know if you can put that on the podcast, of me when I was first locked up in Yasma. I'm this young kid that just had no idea about life. There's a saying I always say, Russ, when you focus on the problem, you'll always find pain. When you focus on the solution, you'll always find happiness. Mm. And it's something I live by now, so, yeah. When was the Jeff Morgan Lifestyle Program established? So I got out, I started a um, personal, I got out 2010. Mm. I started to um, work as a personal trainer uh, and basically I was doing that for about six years. At that point in time, my brother committed suicide um, and I then took a break. I had a huge amount of money. I was making great money as a personal trainer slash nutritionist. And I just figured, you know what, do I still want to go down this path helping people? Could you even help people? Your brother committed suicide, mate. You're supposed to be someone who could so help you felt people. felt like a failure over that? Yeah, sort of like, you know, it beats you up a bit. And I, yeah, 18 months it stewed with me. And then one day I walked out of my bedroom and I remember slapping the door as hard as I can and just saying, let's go and 
I sort of literally in that moment stood up and just walked out and got back on with life. Mm. And I was like, what's the lesson that you learned from this whole situation? And for me, I was like, your brother's no longer here. Life's precious. Make sure you make every second count. And off I went on the journey again. And I said, do you want to go back into PT now and build your client base or do you want to start um, this journey? And I had so many talks during that time as a PT, schools, then in the corporates, then in, and it became very diverse. And at that point in time, I realized I had something special that I could basically go out and impact somebody's life. So what was, how could I unpack the lessons of this, lessons of crime, I suppose, that could be transferable to life? We created 67 modules around the lifestyle program, everything from dealing with stress, unpacking trauma, consequential thinking, anger management, all the things that, Mm. you know, we went through and um, through to habits and rituals, self-love, self-care, self-worth, your mental health. And we realized once we taught people these components and they realized that they were just existing in a, in a, a wheel of life, you know, the hamster on the wheel, and then we identified what your perfect life actually looks like. Now what are the steps that we need to take? All right, what's the perfect life look like for you? For me, a lot of inner peace and happiness, man, to be yeah. honest, and that was my goal. Like, And then I'd say, all right, what's that look like on a life level? Where do you want to live? I wanted to live in a place that had good facilities that I could access and utilise when I was there, but also then be in a central location where I could travel out via road or via yeah. the airport really quickly and good facilities within yeah. the area. Um, so I identified an area where I want to, we're about to buy something by the end of this year and same principle and we're now looking at something by the water so we can live that lifestyle, walk, wake up, walk the dog, see the ocean, maybe go for a swim, run, train or something of that nature and that's the type of, you know, that's just one component of that perfect life but sit down and write out each component what type of car would you like to drive is it practical based around do you live in the city country um what type of clothes do you wear are they comfortable while you train you don't want to be training in something that doesn't breathe and and you know you're all sort of uncomfortable in think about it like that and the same principle yeah if i went to a place no one wants to go to a club that they don't like the music in and that's what, you know, in life, we don't think about this. We go, I'm just going to take the job because it'll pay my bills. Mm. And all of a sudden, you're in a nightclub that you don't like. You walk, you're driving every day, hating life, getting into the, you know, your computer desk area, hating life once again. Then something happens, you're burning everybody within the office. But people will go through that because it pays their bills for the next 20, 30 years. Find okay. what you're passionate about and each component of life, whether it's relationships, family, friends, your business, if you got one or you want to create one, maybe your physical side, is it training, yoga, meditation, try them all. Because you don't know what you actually love until you're in that space and go, shit, I love MMA, I love Krav Maga. People go, what's Krav Maga? Go and try it. And then you'll be able to be very specific around your life. Do yourself a favor, go out and actually be thoughtful. There's, yeah, you know, even with beds now, you can try the beds out at home. If it doesn't feel comfortable, creates a sore neck. Why would you go and buy it? But people will. Either that'll save me money, but it will impact your quality of life. Think about that conversation in general around every single step you take within your life, and then you become very intentional around your inner peace and happiness. And that's basically where I sit as a perfect life. Where are you at now as far as chasing and achieving your goals? Like, are you, are you, are you satisfied of what you've achieved? Or? I'm someone that will always strive, man. Like, I'm always trying to... I wouldn't say I'm always trying to be better. I'm just always trying to evolve mm. and, and leave 
as many footprints as I possibly can on this planet. Mm. We've still got plenty of work to do with the lifestyle program. We're still out and doing everything we possibly can, but same principle. Is there a work-life balance for me? Is there some... Mm. Am I working with Aboriginal communities enough? Am I working with corporates enough? Is that one of your one of the main things you like to do? You like to really because I think you're a great role model, role model, and you're so well respected in the Aboriginal communities. Everyone just loves you. Yeah, I think one of the saddest things for me, I got into what I got into, so that someone didn't go through what I went through, and mm. you understand that totally. If you can go back to Mount Jordan, help every single one of those live mm. a better life, not what you went through. The same principles for myself, but I think um yeah it's it's a hard journey um Mm. and i think until i'm able to um work with the aboriginal community more and that would be my mainstay or business um it will always be a sadder journey it's probably something that eats me up in doesn't eat me up inside but i love to have more interactions with our community Mm. and whether it's the funding side of things or um, something of that nature. I'd just like to be out there a lot more. We mm. go out and you know, say there's, I think there's potential for 15 workshops a week. We're fully booked out in general. And what you'll find is out of those 15, I might do three workshops with Aboriginal communities or organisations, mm. health services. The rest are corporate. Mm. And I'd love that to be the opposite way around mm. and be able to impact and change and influence our community in a positive way where we still use culture as a huge component of inner peace and happiness how important is your culture to you yeah man like i see you when i see you when you element on social media and you're standing on your rock and and you know you're, you're feeling empowered and you know love I, it. I love that that I, man I, I connect when i see you doing that man i, I get a bit of, i get a really good warm vibe myself you know seeing you and you're in it you're really love in it, it. I, I learned. I was very lucky. I had um, Charlie Perkins, Cecil Patton, Tiger Bales, Dave Bell, Shane Phillips, like these men that were in amongst the father dark, figures. Yeah, yeah, darkest hours like of our community being smashed, and they yeah. were standing up and being strong voices. And I think even my mother was a huge voice. And the stories I've heard since she's passed from people said your mum was very staunch around all that time and being proud and strong. And I think, you know, I always think back to my ancestors and that's, you know, the same. I'd love to continue the journey towards being a great voice, mm-hmm. but bri- bridging a gap where there's understanding between both parties. And what, what that means is both parties, it doesn't matter about race, it matters about human beings and how we treat one another. Mm. And then finding a solution as to, hey, what happened and what's the best solution moving forward? Talk about the lessons learned and mm. the solutions in the situation about that happiness that Australia wants like we mm. can see it's happening let's just make it happen fast forward reconciliation is pretty easy isn't it once everyone about it, once everyone's on the same page what blows me away is that we still talk about it it should all happened and you know that's you can't do you can't go into any relationship boy or girl let's say I'm with this girl and I give a heart 50% how long do you reckon the girl will stay around for mm. she's going to say I don't trust this guy I'm not into this guy I don't think oh, I'm not sure about this guy and the same principle Aboriginal people feel that you're given half an effort give us everything you possibly got and we'll give you everything back and we want to share the oldest living culture with everybody in, you know, on this planet including mm. fellow Australians and mm. what a beautiful journey it would be to sit down on a day when 
it's about all Australians being inclusive and celebrate together. And that's yeah. probably the best way. If we can't even get to an agreement on that, how serious is that girl in this relationship with myself? And we go, yeah, she's not serious. So you know what? We're yeah. just going to pull, we're going to pull up stumps here, and we're going to walk away for a moment. And until we come into that conversation with an open heart and purely about real solutions, we'll always find that we'll talk about the problem. And as I said, that's going to bring a lot of pain. Jeff, where can people find out more about the Jeff Morgan Lifestyle Program? Uh, Jeffrey Morgan, J E W F R E Y. Um, au, and pretty much the same on all socials if you find me there it'd be under jeffrey morgan or jeffrey morgan lifestyle program on instagram the jeffrey morgan on tiktok um, and basically on youtube jeffrey morgan so by all means same thing with facebook jeffrey morgan as well so head across um, if you felt something resonated with yourself you want to deal with some trauma find inner peace happiness improve your quality of life live your perfect life and step into it by all means reach out whether it's as an individual organization health service community staff school kids juvenile justice centers or jails and we'll guarantee that we've had a 93% success rate from the data we've collected over the last three years since we've been using the data collection. And that's that's a huge percentage in any program across this country, 93% success rate from participants that have um, jumped into the program. And as I said, we've had about half a million in those last three years. So please don't hesitate to reach out. It'll change or save your life. Jeff Morgan. Thank you for being on the stick-up. Legend, brother. Thank you. And I'm just glad the stick-up's a conversation these days rather than you and I running into a bank. Mm -hmm.